It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Chris. Yes, Andrew. I saw this thing the other day and it made me sick to my stomach. It was disgusting. (laughs) There was this guy who was putting his bare feet on the rock. (laughs) Like all of his toes just wiggling around and just like getting the like his nasty feet all over the rock. It made me sick. I wanted to puke. (laughs) Yeah, but if you look closely, they were very well kept feet. (laughs) I've had Somewhere between like three and 12 people in the last couple of weeks have reached out to me to, um, you know, have, you know, kind of like prodded me in this evil way to write a scathing takedown about barefoot climbing. Um, <laughs> because there's this fear that's gripping the climbing world right now that people are going to start foregoing their climbing shoes and just putting their nasty ass feet on the wall. Yeah. Well, it's like, there's like a super pack of I think it's like funded by Scarpa and Sportiva that are are trying to are running this whole thing from the shadows. <laughs> They're like, no, people have to think they have to have climbing shoes. There's this pro shoe uh, dark money super dark money, pack exactly. that's uh, stoke in the climbing world. They're like, we got to go to work, boys. We got our work cut out. New real rocks out. They figure out that climbing without shoes on is better. We're doomed. <laughs> What if that was the case? Well, it appears to be based on that film you're talking about. That, I mean, yeah, we're gonna, so we're going to talk about that film and, and some of uh, just our thoughts about Real Rock because it's um, timely and, and whatnot. But, um, you know, that idea of just climbing barefoot just seems insane to me. Yeah, it's come and gone in, in climbing. You know, there's been these little flare-ups. Uh, here in Colorado, it was uh, Skip Guerin was like this big proponent of it. Um, and he climbed 512 in Eldo without his without shoes on for a while. I think Henry Barber was a no shoes guy, and uh, I think that also went all the way back to um, the what's the what's the German climbing area with the the knots and stuff. Um, the Franken? Uh, no. Yeah, I think it's part of the Franken. No, it's You're like the Elbstein or whatever. Oh, the Elb Sandstein. Yeah, or I'm not sure. If you and they, that, they right? that's where that's where Barber picked it up. Yeah, is those guys have these little like leather things that go over your foot but your toes stick out mm. because it was like all about not damaging the stone and using your feet so it's it's been here in climbing in and out and i think like i said the this sort of pack of of climbing shoe manufacturers like stamp out any any like hint of it whenever yeah. they can <laughs> yeah yeah good thing those guys actually don't make that much money so <laughs> otherwise the real rock film tour would be screwed um so yeah, well, what's what, barefoot Jesus? Barefoot? What was his name? <laughs> barefoot Charles. Barefoot Char- Charles. Um, yeah. In case you haven't seen it, it's just uh, he's just kind of um, I don't know how you'd describe him. He's he's certainly a character. Yeah, uh, he's like a French hippy dippy trippy guy. That it, yeah, kind of kind of new age guru ish yeah. in a way. Not like quite a full hippie, but like. But yeah, just this kind of a freak of a guy um, who is like insanely strong and climbs barefoot. And I, I've heard of him doing, you know, like V13s and stuff in Fontainebleau over the last decade. I guess, you know, and, and this back, this was back even when I was like an editor um, at Rock and Ice Magazine. And I had just, you know, my initial skepticism of, you know, oh, he must just be choosing problems that where like a shoe wouldn't make a difference. And so he's he's getting the grade on, on, on just a very specific kind of situation where, you know, like your your the shoe wouldn't really make a difference. But he from what I saw in this film, it's just like he can kind of adapt to all different styles and different really freaky to watch him climb the way he like used his toes and like, Yeah, he'd crimp with his toes. Yeah, he was crimping. Like with he his was toes. crimping like rolling them up and you know, engaging his little toe knuckles Which on top of it and stuff. It was like one of the moments I barfed. <laughs> yeah, but his feet looked great. Yeah, they were nice feet, but I still full barf. Well, and he also wasn't using pads, so he's like the the old school like blue sard type groove. So yeah, it was like all like I you know 
I don't need any of these, these, this accoutrement that everyone else needs to climb. I'm just like this total free spirit. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was, I mean, I watched in a big group of people. It was like some friends, you know, we paid for it and all sat and watched it together on this big screen. Actually, it was kind of cool in their house. But, um, but yeah, even during it, I was being annoying because I was like, wait a minute. Like, why does his, and his hands too, like there's some close ups of his hands when he's crimping on those tiny things in there. I mean, they're beautiful hands. <laughs> and, and like his toes, you'd expect them to be calloused and stuff, but they're not. Right. And so I was just, and then, I mean, then he supposedly lives in a cave, but he's like completely, like absolutely spotless. Like he doesn't have dirty laundry and his hair looks quaffed. I mean, like, and, and like some folks pointed out like that we, you know, modern people wash their hair too much. And if you let it get like, to a certain point, it, it becomes kind of lustrous in it with its oils and stuff. Yeah. But that's not what it looked like because that that's a certain look and it can look nice. But his was like fluffy and flowy, and so and and you know and also just even his facial hair was perfect. Mm-hmm. And so the whole like I live in a cave and I just like forage in the forest and stuff. The whole thing was just a little thin for me. <laughs> it just didn't fit. Yeah, and it know. could just be that we're skeptical. Because we happen, this is the first time really um, that we've been confronted with someone who can climb harder than us as well as groom themselves better than us. <laughs> the combination. Yeah, the combination know, of the two. Um, I mean, if you're looking at me right now, I'm not exactly groomed very well. That's what I'm saying. And Lord knows I don't, yeah. You don't have to be, I mean, kids, like first timers at the gym climb harder than i do but do you think when he goes to the gym he climbs barefoot but then puts his climbing shoes on to go into the restroom (laughs) 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 and everyone gets mad at him and he's like no 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 don't worry these are my bathroom shoes they've got piss on them but i'm not gonna touch the holes with them because i'm taking them off yeah (laughs) they're like his crocs these aren't tc pros or tcps Well, I mean, you know, I just it got me sort of it, it got me sort of thinking about how you could probably like pull one over on the real rock people. And and I started to think about like, well, this would be it. You get like your buddy, you know, Kurt or Greg or whatever, and you're like, "Dude, how's your French accent?" And they're just like, "Oh, I don't know. Is it good?" And they're like, "You're in." And then you go to Fontainebleau, you know, you cut some footage like was there any like uncut sending in the film? Well, he down climbed a. V13. Yeah, but there was a cut in that. You couldn't see it. Uh, I don't know. I or guess they I sped it up so you yeah. could get a cut out of that because okay. they they did something weird to that. Yeah, we're going down. This is like a conspiracy. And then there was like the 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 hard problem where he's in the cave. Did you see his hair dab? His hair dab. Yeah, his I, hair dab. I wasn't aware. I wasn't looking for hair dab. Well, that would be a perfect way to like CGI <laughs> out some support is just cover it with hair. <laughs> Right, and the thing is, is that like basic, like decent CGI is available to everyone now. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying, you could like create a film about this fictional character, mm-hmm. and even like with a backstory where you just because like the dude they kept talking to the guy, um, the the Swiss dude, yeah, right, and so it's just like okay, he's in on it. <clears throat> The guy holding the cameras in on it, and Charles is in on it, and that's it. You've got mm-hmm. your whole crew. Like that's all you need. It's a very tight conspiracy. Fess up, Chad. Well, then the other thing is the whole like, oh, let's show some footage of him. Why did they include the on the off the wagon thing when he didn't even do it? Right. And he's just like hanging on. You're like, oh, cool. He's gonna. Oh no, he just went home. Like was, that was a strange twist in it, wasn't it? It was strange. Yeah, it was a strange film to make a film about someone who like didn't actually. Like send anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, like other than he down climbed to V thirteen, which is like a freak level of strength, right? Um, yeah, maybe that was the most. Imp- I mean, that was green screen. <laughs> no, that problem. was objectively like the most impressive, measurable thing right. that he did in the film. I think. Yeah, maybe I don't know. It was like hard to tell what the other problems were, but I have seen people struggle. Really good climbers struggle to do that problem. And to watch him just down climb it in his bare feet was like pretty impressive. I don't know. I'm not sitting here saying that Barefoot Charles is is a charlatan, a charlatan, if you will. (laughs) Um, 
I'm not going that far. It just made me start to think about how you could do that pretty easily. And actually, I've had well, these so, like, yeah, these but like. You, your skepticism got raised because of how his grooming and how well kept he was. And you didn't, you, you weren't buying that he was living in a cave. I, I, I mean, I'm going on the mat to say that the cave thing was a stretch. It's like a weekend like, cave. Yeah. Like yeah, it's yeah. not like a full time. I cave. put this out on my on my Facebook page, and we I got a lot of really good comments actually from okay. from a normal cast listeners. And one one of my favorites was that that cave is on his mom's property. <laughs> 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 so people were and and as soon as I put it up, like everybody chimed in, like, "Yeah, I was watching it with a bunch of van life people, and we were all like, wait a second, how yeah. is he so clean?' Right. But I mean, his cave was fastidious, though. Yeah. He had his little jars lined up and all that stuff. Yeah. So I think that like a lot of that was was teased a little bit that he was this like total hermit that lived out in the woods and like lived in a cave. Yeah, I I, I would guess that that's probably overstated. Yeah, he's was probably like, a, like the direct descendant of like Louis the Fourteenth or something, right. and has like billions of dollars. Well, that's kind of like the other thing is like they 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 sort of tried to like make him this like real like new agey sort of guru, and then. You'll, you know, folks that see it now won't see this, but when you when you bought it the opening weekend, it came with like some cut footage of the actual premiere. Alex Honnold and Nina Williams as as narrators or um, MCs, and they brought the filmmakers up. They put all that in there, and one of the things that you'll probably miss because I don't think they'll do that again is that they get in touch with him from the stage, and it's like apparently like four in the morning in France or whatever, but that's where I think the crystal, the crystal palace breaks a little more is because they like Nina, like tries to ask him this like really meaningful question about what he's, he has to learn. You know, it's like, you said you needed more to learn that the forest had more to teach. I think is what he says yeah. in the film. And then she's just like, well, what does it need to teach you? And he just says cramps. <laughs> 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 and I was just like, oh yeah, you caught out. Like Greg, you know, wasn't prepared for that part of his performance. Right. Anyway, so it was yeah. just funny because everybody expected him to be like, oh yes, the forest must teach me stillness, or yeah. you know, teach me to look at my inner being more. <laughs> and he's just like cramps. <laughs> he says it in that like southern accent too. You're like, I thought you were French. <laughs> Hold on. He's like cramps, right. cramping. <laughs> and then they had a good laugh line because. Because uh, they asked him about ladies, like trying to woo ladies, like bringing them back to his cave. And he basically was like, it is no problem or something like that. Yeah, like, fuck yeah, I'd yeah. fuck that guy. Yeah, well, that was a thing because he could sing. That I was know. a nice touch. I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm ripping on he just sweeps. Feet. He just goes to the jeet and sweeps sweeps the ladies yeah. back to his cave is what he yeah. does. He's the last 100%. call. Yeah, last call. Who's coming to the cave? <laughs> <laughs> and can I use your shower? I, I will say that in, in all seriousness, that was my favorite film. I really liked it. I liked seeing someone who is so out there and so weird mm-hmm. and so not the normal. It was well, not the normal person that we've seen because there was a lot of familiar faces in the lineup this year, but also just doing things differently and whether there's, you know, some superficiality or some kind of, uh, I don't know, it's like a, overstated a little bit about his lifestyle. He's he's still like ten leagues outside the the norm of right. what everyone else is doing, right down to not using climbing shoes. And I love that. I love that stuff. I love meeting weird people. I like seeing weird things. I like, I like, yeah. I, I just like that, and it feels like that was so. That's been so missing in so much of the mainstreamification of climbing culture, and so I don't know. I, I'm. Um, you know, I'm obviously revealing my biases here and my priors and what I wish were true. And I do wish it's true that there's there's still freaks in this sport that make it weird and interesting because I like that. I mean, it's it's important that he also climbs really hard because mm-hmm. then it's not just this like, you know, it's not like a publicity stunt, if you will. Yeah. And that's the other thing is he's not like... He was like, oh, you know, the wagon problem was too easy for me. I knew I could do it. It was, and I immediately lost interest in trying it, Mm. which is, you know, you're like, okay, well, you can say that, but, (laughs) you know, 
That's totally what I thought. I'm like, yeah, I can dunk a bat. Yeah. I can dunk a basketball too. I just don't feel like doing yeah, it right now. Yeah, exactly. You know, like the old like playground excuse. Like, I just don't feel like it. I mean, Sharma had that <laughs> faint, had that similar uh, story with the first round, first minute project, which that, that's what the name suggests. He thought it would be like a an easy one two new route, mm-hmm. you know. And it took him forever to do that thing, and it kind of fucked with his head and taught him some humility. So. Yeah, I I don't think it's worth celebrating that attitude because I think that attitude's kind of an ugly attitude. But he's clearly a visionary in mm-hmm. whatever his vision is. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do appreciate that aspect of him and that side, seeing that side of the sport. The other interesting thing I wanted to say about this was um, just to, this is just more proof of um, how outside um, out, out of the norm I am with the rest of what like mainstream climbing opinion is. I put on Twitter like a poll for what the what your favorite film was. And it was like a complete reverse order of my favorite films. Right. You know, the people who like the things that I thought were the worst films were the most popular ones. So I don't know what that says about me or the climbing world, but... Um, well, maybe- I'll, I'll say about Bare- Barefoot Charles is I'm not that I didn't like the film because it was obviously compelling because I was sitting there with this flight of fancy about how I could make up a even more bizarre character and try to like get it in under the, under the door to like real rock. Yeah. And, and you know, we've often lamented on here about the loss of the freaky weirdo side of climbing and how we all want to kind of join the tribe and be the same. So mm-hmm. no, I, I'm not slamming either barefoot Charles. So don't at me about, about barefoot Charles. Um, I just thought it was, you know, it was kind of, it felt like a Thoreau situation because, you know, Thoreau, the the wall on Walden Pond, he would he would bail to mom's house when the weather got shitty, right, uh, right. You know, I would I, I would not so. be surprised if that if that was what was, <laughs> but going that's around. okay because he still fucking cranks with his little bare feet and no pads, <laughs> so you know, très bon, <laughs> as they say. Um. Yeah, and lest it not be clear um, from this intro to this bit here, you should not try to climb barefoot if your feet aren't immaculate like Charles's. Yeah, exactly. Like if your feet look like any of the climbing feet that I've seen. And I guess this is another aspect. Maybe it, maybe our feet wouldn't look so fucked up if we wouldn't shove them into shitty That's little right. shoes. That's You're absolutely right. It's kind of the hair thing. If you huh. don't wash your hair, eventually it looks really great. Huh. Okay. If you don't, if you climb without climbing shoes, your feet don't get fucked up. Oh wow! Okay, right. Charles is on to something. Damn. All right. Well, maybe we should all be climbing barefoot. I just lost my Sportiva sponsorship, and I just barfed in my mouth. Lauren Delaney Miller is a writer and climber living in Berkeley, California. Her new book is Valley of Giants: Stories from Women at the Heart of Yosemite Climbing. It's a compilation of first-person essays written by women who have been pivotal contributors to climbing in Yosemite. I always thought that the climbing scene was Yosemite Valley. Like, my introduction to climbing was through pictures of people climbing in Yosemite, and so that's where I always wanted to go, and I figured that's where everybody always wanted to go. And so I think when I finally ended up going there, um, I guess the first time I ever went there, I just like plopped down in camp four for six weeks, like a lot of other people and spent like a whole season just climbing moderate stuff all over the valley and didn't like know anyone there and didn't feel like I was part of a scene at all. And just kind of like was a climber staying in camp four. And then I came back the next year with a group of friends from Estes Park and also stayed for like six weeks or something. And then those people kind of had more connections the valley like mostly i was camping with quinn brett and a couple of her friends and some of the other rocky climbing rangers and quinn was friends with josie and on that trip they did their seven walls in seven days mission around the valley and i felt like that was kind of my introduction to people that were more ingrained in the valley scene like quinn didn't live there but she had knew a lot of people there and josie had been on the sar team and was kind of in that scene And um, that was kind of my introduction to it. And so the next year I came back in the spring and pretty much stayed all year. And I think that's kind of what let me through Josie really was meeting a lot of those other climbers, other people on SAR, and eventually ended up climbing more that year with Josie and Quinn. And then I guess through that, 
meeting a lot more of those people and ending up on the SAR site myself. And I know a little bit of your um, your history because we've talked before, but uh, one thing I find interesting is you have sort of a trial by fire story that involves Quinn. You basically like jumped up onto a uh, one of their training missions up El Cap or can can you fill in fill in that story a little bit because it was it it was quite a like I said just a trial by fire um thrower in the deep end of the pool kind of situation that I find really interesting. Oh, it was for sure. So I guess that year this was the this is the fall of 2017. In that spring I'd climbed the nose for the first time and kind of like a traditional 3-day wall. And then that fall I came back and I guess actually before that Josie had posted online that she was looking for a partner to run up the triple direct in a day and I said oh I could jug all day <laughs> that's I'll, I'll do that but it was August and like it was super hot and we bailed like after the free blast because those fixed lines back to the ground seemed like really enticing your feet your feet yeah. hurt it's like it's <laughs> oh, like we drank all really I mean bad. I drank like half my water already and all I had done was like right. jug the free blast and Fixed lines seemed really good at that point, so we wrapped. And that was kind of it. And then I had a friend, Nick, come into the valley that fall after that, and we did a nose in a day, which is the longest documented possible nose in a day with, like, an official time of 23.59. Yeah. (laughs) So then I was like, oh, I totally got this. And so then Quinn came into town, and I just kind of assumed, oh, Quinn's here. Like, I'm out, right? Like, Josie's just going to climb. With Quinn now, but Josie was kind of like, no, like we we tried the triple direct in a day, and um, at that point we were pretty sure that there hadn't been a one day all female ascent of the triple direct, which kind of makes sense. Like it's kind of a convoluted route in some ways, even though that was also like the first, it was the first route on El Cap that had an all female ascent. So for us, it was kind of special, even though I think a lot of people kind of throw away the triple direct as not a real route, maybe because it's only got one independent pitch, but. Anyway, we thought it would be cool. And so I just thought, okay, well, Quinn's in town, so I'm I'm out. But Josie was kind of committed, and she was like, well, no, like, this was our thing. So we can all go together, but I'm not going to do it without you, which I thought was really, like, an amazing act of mentorship, even though obviously I was going to be way sl- like slow the whole team down. But they just, like, didn't care about that. And so the three of us went up there. And, I mean, I led, like, such a small little portion of the mirror pitches in the middle because I was like not a great aid climber or a great free climber. So they were like, okay, you could take this little block in the middle <laughs> with like moderate aid climbing pitches. Um, it's like, here, play this tambourine. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you can be in the band, but here, here's your tambourine. Yeah, but it was great. I mean, like I, I, I mean, I was just like worked, right? Like I remember them being kind of like 16 hours, like what a slog. And I was like, I felt like we were flying, you know, like it was so much like 16 hours is so much faster than 24 hours on El Cap. So I just felt like it was amazing. And I was totally, totally worked. Like I jugged the free hanging line from for the whole top half of the nose. It was just like my one hip from like jugging so much overhanging rope was like totally exhausted. But um, yeah, that was like my big mission and huge like act of mentorship on their part. And and like a deliberate one, right? Like there was like, we talked about the fact that they could go much faster without me, but that they wanted me to go with them as their friend. And I felt like that was really cool because they definitely could have just said, okay, we're going to go run up this thing. And it wouldn't, I mean, we didn't have like a real commitment on paper or anything to do it together. And so that was just, yeah, really special for me. So you fell right into, uh, I mean, really like right into mentorship, if you want to call it friendship also, uh, with, with some of the best and highest achieving women climbers of the era. Um, but when did you start to think about or notice or wonder about like the, the women who'd come before or notice this, like, I think, you know, what's pretty clearly like this historical gap in documentation uh, which I think has became your mission, obviously. But, uh, you know, what made you start looking around and going, like, who are the Quinn Bretts of, you know, 25 years ago or 30 years ago or even 40 or 50 years ago? I think you go that deep in the book. Yeah, and I think, like, because I'm from the East Coast, like, I just read a lot about climbing. And I didn't have, like, a lot of magazines. But, like, I went to the library and took out books on climbing. And I felt like, okay, like, there's – women climb, right? Like I read Steph Davis's book a bunch of times. I read Lynn Hill's book and you're like, okay. And I just feel like when I, yeah, it was that year I showed up in the Valley and 
Quinn and Josie were just low-key, non-professional climbers doing this huge link-up of valley walls, and they were just like normal people. And you're like, I can't, this should be all over the news, right? Like, this seems like a really big deal, but it's not really getting very much attention. And I was like, there's probably more women like that than we don't know about because they're just like not writing about it or not getting written about. And then I think when I, same thing, came back to SAR and got to meet people like Mary Braun and hear all these stories about Sue McDevitt and Joe Whitford and all these kind of longtime valley climbers that like if you're maybe really in the scene, these are people that you knew about or if you climbed with them, you know that they're kind of badass, but their stories haven't exactly been like passed down and like made into lore the way that other people have. And I just started thinking, oh, I wonder if because there's a couple really standout women in the Valley history like Steph and Lynn and Beth Rodden, that then people kind of like in their heads, maybe subconsciously like check that woman box <laughs> and kind of just move on. Whereas I just felt like, oh, my God, there's just all these women everywhere. Like the women I worked with on SAR, just like day in and day out crushing without making like a big splash about it. But at the same time, there were people like Mary Braun, who I got to know, who I thought, wow, if we don't start writing this down, we're going to lose a lot of it. Like it wasn't just the contemporaries. It was hearing all these old stories, which I only got to hear because I was there. And you thought, man, <laughs> like these are all going to disappear because they've never been written down. They've just been told out loud and passed down that way. And so that's kind of how I started thinking about maybe we should just like start by trying to get some of them written down. Yeah, I'd love to ask you some more questions about your book. But before we get there, I was just I've been sitting here kind of smiling um, because uh, your your story and, and relationship to climbing and introduction through Yosemite was very similar to my own. Uh, introduction to the sport. You know, I recall having these experiences of comparing the the stories that I've been reading with the reality that I, I experienced, uh, at, you know, actually living in Camp 4 for however many weeks at a time. And I, I, I'd be curious to hear your um, take on that, especially coming from a different perspective and background than, than me about, uh, you know, just like, did the stories that you were reading accurately capture the the scene and culture that you were expecting or was it uh, drastically different in any um, way? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I think in a lot of ways, I felt like the things that were accurate were the th things that we all go there for, like the excitement and the feeling that Camp 4 really is the center of the universe and all those things and like the, the idea that Camp 4 is a place where people are just climbing their faces off every day in like this fun, exciting place. And I felt like, yeah, it was amazing. Like I, the, the season that I got to stay in camp for as like a brand, like a pretty new climber for the first time, I feel like is some of the most fun that I've ever had. And just meeting random people and like that day and just being like, oh, you want to go climbing and like going out to climb snake dikers, you know, and having this huge epic with like people that you just met. And I just felt like it was such an amazing place. And I feel like that's and that's kind of why I was like, oh, I want to read more about this. And I like went to the store in the valley and got Roper's Camp 4 because I was like, I just want to know more about this. And I feel like that's kind of when for the first time I started like getting a sense that people didn't see history the same way. There's very few women mentioned in his book at all. And then there's a couple times where he ex like addresses that explicitly by saying that women went climbing, but usually because their boyfriends or husbands did it. And I just was like, I just feel like that's probably not true. Like there's a lot of women here climbing and they seem like they're having a really nice time and <laughs> no one's dragging them along to do anything, you know? And so my feeling that like, I feel like, yeah, that's kind of when I started thinking, I don't know, like maybe this is more explicit than I thought. Like maybe it was just that women didn't feel like writing. And so they just didn't write. And it's just by circumstance that there's not a lot of writing about women from like the early years of Yosemite. And I kind of part of me wondered, well, maybe it wasn't until later, you know, and I feel like we talk about people like Liz Robbins, who's been discredited a lot because she climbed with Royal as kind of like an example of that supporting kind of Roper's claim that like women went climbing with their boyfriends and husbands, but not on their own. And so I thought, well, maybe it wasn't until later, like maybe it wasn't until the Stone Masters that women kind of started breaking out on their own. And I feel like that was kind of the biggest revelation for me when I started working on this book. And I mean, then the first thing was to decide where to start, um, because like before Rock 
roped rock climbing, you know, there's so much scrambling in the Sierra and you think, oh, how far back do we want to go? But once I kind of said, well, let's just start with ropes and it put like a clean beginning on where I was going to start looking. I feel like I just found like a huge treasure trove of examples of women climbing on their own, certainly because they loved the sport and not because anyone was making them do it. Why don't you tell us about your research process in terms of how you found some of these stories and essays from the past? Yeah, I would say that there's like a history that goes back to people that we can still talk to that are mostly still around. And the first place, well, I mean, this was, I started in like the summer of 2019, which feels like a long time ago because I did most of my early research on Super Topo, which now is funny because no one uses Super Topo anymore because that summer they shut down the forum. So like by the time I started, you could read it, but you couldn't interact on it anymore. But there was hundreds and hundreds of posts in threads about women's history on Super Topo already. So it was kind of the perfect place where you had like a lot of old timers for better like for lack of a better word telling little bits of stories you know and and so many of those were on there and of course it would have been easier if the forum had still been active because then you could have just messaged someone right on super topo because a lot of people were posting on their names uh, like a username without their actual name um which i'm sure you guys remember but it's possible that there's new climbers now who never got to use Supertopo that are listening to this. <laughs> so you had a username and sometimes it had nothing to do with your actual name. So you wouldn't know who that person was. And because you couldn't like talk to them on Supertopo anymore, I had that to was then... kind of a hallmark of the site actually is not yeah, knowing it was who quite was important. actually talking. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but then that summer they shut down the forum. And so I was like, okay, there were like stories on here and like things I looked into. And so, but that was kind of all back to like people that are mostly still around and like who remember this. And that's like people who were climbing mostly in like the seventies and beyond, but then kind of the, the pre seventies history got a lot harder. And that was kind of more, I had to do a lot of like archival, like true archival research, um, which got harder because I really started that in the spring of 2020 and then could not, as everything got shut down, could not go to any of these archives myself. And so the big two that I were looking at was the Sierra Club and the Stanford Alpine Club. And that's because for a long time in the beginning of climbing in Yosemite, you needed to register with the National Park Service every time you went climbing. And the Park Service required that you had a certified leader. And so the only way to really get into climbing would be to go through one of these clubs and like get this certification as a leader. And because those clubs are like based in the Bay Area, they were some of the biggest ones that were putting up new routes and climbing every weekend in Yosemite. And so the Stanford Alpine Club has a huge archive of boxes and boxes and boxes. But all you can see online is basically a table of contents of what's in there. And so it'll say things like box two is Alpine Club trips from 1950 to 1963, and then there's folders, and the folders will have names. And you'd be like, well, there's tons of women's names, but I can't, like, none of it's been digitized. So then you'd have to, like, reach out to the archivist there and say, oh, I'm interested in, you know, box two, folder 13, labeled B Vogel, and I'm looking for anything in it that might have to do with Yosemite or rock climbing. And then they'd say, okay, we'll get back to you. And a couple weeks later, that we'll have gone through it they will go through it and scan all those things in and then send you a bunch of scans. And then you could say, oh, this is one that I want. Could you do like a, like, then you could pay for like, say there was a photo. You could like get them to scan like a nice TIFF image or something and send it over to you. But like, it took forever. And I feel like there's probably still things in there that would have been great additions. But like, I had to, I mean, the Stanford special collections are only opening to non-Stanford people in May of this year. They're still not open. So I still feel like there's tons of stuff that I probably didn't get to see, but that's how a lot of that worked. And same for the Sierra Club. You'd like look at the library and you'd talk to someone and say, oh, I'm interested in this. Could you try to scan it and send it over to me? So that part was hard, but also really interesting. And luckily, because climbing was clubs at that point, those clubs documented things really well. Like you can see the rosters of who was in the clubs every year and like group photos every year and they documented every trip and they have oral histories that John Rawlings did in the 90s with a lot of the people but he kind of thought the same thing I think which is oh these people are getting quite old and we're probably going to lose a lot of this soon and so in the late 90s he went back and did oral histories with a lot of those people and a lot of those have not been transcribed and so I would just transcribe them and listen to them and see if there was stuff that I thought we could use 
um, in this. So I would say, yeah, there was kind of two different research modes, one for like people that are still around and one for people that are mostly not still around. Yeah, that's fascinating. And um, it sounds like there's a, a lot of potential um, eggs to hunt down for a volume two of your book. Um, if you want to keep digging or you might be sick of doing it by now, but, um, <laughs> we'll see. yeah, the, uh, you know, I was having a conversation with a fellow writer and colleague, we were just kind of talking about climbing history and he, he kind of was asking me my two cents on whether people are even interested in reading about climbing history or why that would be the case that they would find it compelling. And, you know, I couldn't come up with a really solid answer to that because I'm not really sure what people are interested in reading right now. You know, you see a lot of discourse just take place on social media and that's kind of the opposite of the archival deep dives that you're you're talking about here. What are the reasons that you think people should be reading climbing history? Climbing history as a whole is interesting because I my impression is that certain climbing areas have more documented history and like the climbers the culture there is one of history more than other places you know like i live in bishop now i climb a lot in the gorge i don't think most climbers there care that much about the history of who was putting up those routes sometimes but like i don't feel like most climbers even always know the names of the routes that they're climbing on they just like know the grade and can describe roughly where it is but i feel like there's certain places that that history has been passed down more and i feel like yosemite is one of those places where like i don't know in the within the last couple of years i remember climbing at Reed's Pinnacle and some German climbers had come to take a picture of themselves on Reed's Direct because they had had the picture of Werner Braun on Reed's with the boombox in their room forever. And they're finally in Yosemite and all they want to do is like go climb Reed's because that's the image that they think of when they think of Yosemite. And like, that's a really old, that's got to be a 50 years old photo at this point. And so I think that that's carried on in some places more than others. And I think that for me, at first, I didn't care if anybody read my book. I just felt like, well, there's things that have been written out there that say that women weren't climbing. And so if nothing else, now there's at least one thing to counter that. And this can just be a response that if no one ever reads it, then that's fine. But I feel like what I've learned is that people, women in particular, are really excited to see that their lineage goes back so far. Like, I think that it's hard to deny that women climb and climb hard today. But I think that this is actually kind of contrary to what a lot of people think and when people realize oh no women have been putting up first ascents in yosemite since the beginning of first ascents in yosemite then i think that kind of like changes for some people the way that they feel there and that they're like totally a part of this thing and not a new addition to it yeah it's it is interesting because i mean that roper thing and, and you quote it in the book i believe right yeah you, you do a direct quote of roper's comment about girlfriends and such um, but I, but I mean, if I look back to like so much of the Stone Masters, if you take Lynn Hill out and and uh, Mari, there's so much of that storytelling that does. I mean, it literally sort of pits you know these men climber against like these tourist women, and like there's so much of the writing that's like that lampooning of like trying to hook up, and and it's it is interesting because that is a common place that women play in those stories, and uh, you know, and that's. You know, you know, at the time when I read it, it's, you know, I'm 20, it's hilarious. But then as, a, as someone else that's delved into the history of climbing, I look back and I'm like, it's not a great place to be, you know, sticking that whole side of the gender for the most part. I mean, that's just a comment that, to go along with yours about what your purpose is, you know, behind writing this book, because it has more of a purpose, obviously, than entertaining, um, although it is quite entertaining. But yeah, so let me ask you this. I mean, it's a bit explicit in the book at times, but going back, you know, 30, 40 years with these clubs and things like that, or 50 years, 60 years, 70 years at times, what do you think some of the barriers were that these women were facing um, in terms of, of getting into climbing or getting their name on things or doing first ascents? Or, I mean, you just mentioned the fact that they had to become certified leaders, which certainly went through men, I would imagine. Um, but, but what about other stuff? I mean, let, let's just talk about what life was like for women back then. Yeah, it's interesting. One thing that I noticed, and like I am not a like historian by trade, you know, like a lot of things that I notice are just things that I notice. And so mm -hmm. without being able to like, you know, do tons of thesis level interpretation of them or whatever. But 
like one thing that I never mind. That's all. That's all we deal with here on (laughs) on the run out. We don't. If you can't do thesis level, we don't want to talk about it. (laughs) But it's interesting. Like with the clubs, it's really interesting. I think because when you look at like the 30s and the 40s, like the beginning of roped climbing in America, there were years where there were more women on those clubs than men, which makes sense because men had to go to war and do things like that. And then I think that like there was a return. My interpretation of it is that by the 50s, there was like a return of men from war. And I know when, when a lot of people think about the 50s in America, we think a lot about like family and home life and the suburbs and like this gender norm that didn't almost exist in the same way before. And I think that's when you really start to see machismo become a bigger part of climbing. And we think of climbing then as like first ascents are super important. And when you take it out of Yosemite and you look at like this nationalistic kind of race to climb big peaks around the world and put your flag on top of things. And I feel like that's kind of actually the first time Americans started having that as being a part of climbing. And then, yeah, as part of clubs, you had to become this certified leader. And for a long time, I think part of it was just the blatant fact that men didn't think women could catch a hip belay. Uh, they were small, you know, like women were small and men were big and they were like truly worried that women couldn't go because they were not physically strong enough. Um, I don't think any of it was necessarily like having anything to do about like women's mental capabilities as much as I've seen people be like worried, written, worried that like they thought women literally just physically like couldn't do the thing that was cried. And like people were climbing with everything was climbed with pitons. Like it was so much more physical you know, like sport climbing has such a smaller gap, I feel like, between things. And like being a small light climber now could be like a really helpful thing. But back at the time when all of climbing was like slow aid climbing with hammers and pitons, like it was more like manual labor, I think, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it just like didn't seem like a thing that dainty women maybe could do physically, like, um, which I think is not super surprising. But then we can kind of see how that bleeds into everything else and then then later on when people say well you know i didn't include women in my history book because they weren't doing first ascents you're like well number one that's false but also number two there's no context right like in order to do a first descent you had to be a certified leader and there's a lot of times when women were on those ascents and their name didn't get recorded on the summit register because they didn't lead so they weren't really like part of the team but they weren't leading because they weren't allowed to be leading. And so I feel right. like it's just like, miss, you know, like it, you're just missing a lot of context when you just say things like, oh, I just document, you know, like if we just go back and we document who did first descents and like that's what's important in history, it kind of misses the point in two ways. One, which is that it's false, but also that, yeah, without that context of what it meant to be a leader and like what that included. And I think I've read something, I read a really interesting letter just the other day from the someone in the Stanford Alpine Club who was saying that something he noticed is that like women then had a harder time, in his opinion, becoming leaders because they couldn't remember where the routes went because they were always following. Um, mm. Like they weren't good route finders because they weren't used to having to make decisions because they were used to being in a position of following. And I don't really know if that's true, but it's an interesting way to look at what happens when you're used to being a follower, which is an interesting word outside of climbing, you know, but... I think that, yeah, that th- that stuff gets kind of passed down. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until women kind of decided to start climbing together that I think people have had to, men have had to grapple with what women are capable of. And I think that's why we still see women really drawn to doing things on teams of women. And it's because you can't say that the women weren't leading when it's a group of all women, right? And like, we see this today. And that's exactly why women were grouping together to go climbing together, like in the... 40s and early 50s even and i feel like it's kind of exactly the same now which is that there's no room for taking away from your accomplishments if you climb on an all-female team and it's interesting to kind of see those parallels now you know the early essays were really fascinating you know from that era for a bunch of reasons because even some of the women in there mentioned either you know this idea of like them being child bearers and people telling you can't go climbing because you'll like ruin yourself for having kids and that was such this, you know, and you talk about the 50s and the family, the nuclear family and all that sort of stuff. It was such this pressure. No, don't, you know, don't go ruin yourself before you've, you know, bred for the human race kind of thing. Um, and and it, it was just clear that so many of these women had 
a bit of this pioneering spirit to to not be put in their place by that attitude and and to to go out and break out of it. And also I noticed, you know, so many of them were, you know, it was partially because of those clubs you were looking at, but these were also women that were um going on to be college educated at, you know, even at a graduate level or beyond. And even that, you know, was was against the grain to a certain extent at those times. So it's interesting how these women sort of floated to the top of that in a lot of ways. And climbing was just one of the contexts in which they did it. Um, do you know what I mean? Like they, they were, they were rebellious or they were counterculture in a way. Um, even if some of them did finally stop and go on, you know, th- that's mentioned in some of them as well to, to have families and find that important as well. But yeah, um, it's just cool that you had, you know, you have this like archetype of, of this climber who's going to kind of have to fight against the grain to do what they want to do. Yeah. And then like it's, you know, moving forward in time a little bit. I talked to a lot of women who were climbing in the 60s, even the very early 70s. And at some point it just seemed like they just all of a sudden stopped climbing. And I'd say, oh, what happened? And it's because they got pregnant. They were married. They got pregnant. That was it. That's the end of climbing. Like they had something to go else to. And I feel like you notice this huge shift by the late 70s early 80s where like the women all of a sudden have much longer climbing careers and i think that's because they were financially independent like if you read the julie brugger story like she studied math she was a computer programmer like she was totally financially independent and that's what let her spend season after season climbing in the valley and climbing all over the place because she'd go home and work and come back and do whatever the hell she wanted and that's like not something that was necessarily open to all women either and like i don't think that it's coincidental when you have things like Roe v. Wade and commercially available birth control and Title sure, IX yeah. that all happened in like 72, 73. And that's exactly when you get the all first, like first all females, a sense of El Cap. And like when we think of women's boom in climbing, it's like by the late 70s, early 80s. And I think that it's pretty obvious. <laughs> like, I don't think you need a PhD in history to be able to say like, oh, yeah, well, like if you could be on birth control, then you could certainly climb a lot longer. Because a lot of the women who were climbing early on, their climbing careers were like very short because they pretty mm-hmm. much did it in college and maybe a little bit after. But as soon as they got married, like that was the end of their climbing career. And uh, maybe they went on to do amazing other things. But you'd think, oh, the climbing careers are so short. They didn't necessarily climb forever. And it's because they maybe couldn't. And maybe they were having families on purpose and they were excited about it. But it sure. like had an impact, right? And I think that it's pretty obvious to see that by the early 70s, when women just like have a different place in society as a whole, then they can take up that space in climbing too. I mean, certainly that pressure against mothers in general, I mean, hasn't like entirely gone away, at least in the the mainstream. I mean, Alison Hargreaves certainly was a recent, not super recent, but you know, this century example of, of someone who was sort of, you know, attacked because she was a mother and, and risking her life. So, I mean, it hasn't gone away and it certainly didn't go away in the seventies, but the trend towards just physical autonomy um, in a lot of ways of your body opened up these these pursuits. Oh, yeah, totally. And for me, just even like the fact that we could talk about women's bodies as like things deserving of things that they could that women themselves could make decisions about, like change the conversation about doing that within climbing. And you can mm-hmm. see how, you know, Lynn Hill talks about, you know, she was a gymnast And that's because the sports that she could do as a kid was gymnastics. And she talks in her book about her mom not having any options for sports. And so her being able to do gymnastics at the time was like a big leap forward. And then obviously that worked out for her because gymnastics is really similar to climbing in a lot of ways. But then you can only imagine what happened for girls who were in school in the early 70s who all of a sudden got to do more sports and have more funding for their sports because of Title IX. Then being able to like take that love for athletics Um, and that strength and bring that into climbing and kind of going back to this original reason that men didn't think women could catch hip belays because they weren't strong enough. And you're like, oh, there's just like all these things are so related into like how women have been told to use their bodies, I think. Do you have a favorite essay from your book or a favorite character that you didn't, maybe you weren't aware of who they were before you started on this process and they maybe changed your perspective on climbing like who who would you point to as uh as an example of someone that really affected how you think about uh yosemite climbing and climbing in general yeah i think a huge turning point for me was when i was 
looking through old Stanford materials and saw this picture of this woman with like a full apron and like a welding mask lifted up over her face. And it's just labeled, you know, B. Vogel forging pitons at the Stanford Engineering Lab. And I just, I don't know, like it lit this like huge spark in me to feel like, like what is more being ingrained in the world of climbing and loving climbing for your own sake than like literally forging iron to make equipment so that you could go climbing. Like, I don't know, you'd have to really like your boyfriend to spend all your free time forging pitons for him. Like clearly, like to me, it was just the perfect example of women being influential and like important in climbing and not just like an accessory. Like there's nothing accessory about like forging your own iron to go climbing with. And to me, that was like a huge turning point and feeling like it was real proof that women weren't just on the sidelines. Yeah, she's a really interesting character. And like I'm doing some other writing now about how she kind of took that. She was the first woman certified as a leader by the Stanford Alpine Club, too. And writing about how she kind of took that same mentality to some like pretty hardcore abortion rights activism in the early 70s in Texas. And she's just this really interesting person. And there was just such a wild goose chase to find out all this stuff about her because the first thing I did when I saw that picture is Google her. And I found an obituary from like a, just a few months prior. And I think she was 98 or 99 or something. And she had just passed away. And so it kind of led me down this total rabbit hole of trying to find her family and looking up their names in white pages in Washington and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, it took months and months and months till I could find anyone that was actually related to her to talk to other than just having like a small selection of her letters and photos that were at Stanford. That was really cool. I do remember reading that. And yeah, the idea that she was... She was banging out her own pitons and, you know, some of the stuff that was hinted at that, that she went on to do. Uh, I think she was a standout in those early essays as well um, for me, uh, just because I'm always interested in like, okay, your climbing was awesome, but what else, you know, what else, what else? And it sounds like there's so much what else um, with her. Yeah, I think a lot of the women that were, uh, you'll notice, and other people have pointed this out to me, that a lot of the women climbers, I mean, at least through the 80s, like have PhDs and like have super successful careers doing something totally separate from climbing. And I think that's kind of a testament to like needing to be a really high achieving person who does exactly what you want to do in order to like have become that in climbing at the time. Like you needed to be that Mm -hmm. type of person already. It seems like any guy could kind of just fall into climbing and do it for a while. But like in order to like really achieve a high level as a woman for quite a long time I feel like you needed to be the type of person that was going to take that attitude into everything that you did so I feel like there's a huge trend and people have noticed it as you know I wrote little hundred word bios for everyone at the end of their story in the book and so many of them have graduate degrees and like to have this crazy career and I think that's because climbing at the time like required that tenacity yeah I mean even Liz Robbins is such this behind the scenes person you know, shadowed by her husband's climbing career, husband's name is on the company, but anybody in the know has always known that, you know, she's, she's Royal Robbins, the company, like she's the one who, who created that for the most part and ran it and took care of it and nurtured it. So it's, but, um, she seems to be someone who's, who's, you know, at least accepted that role, if not preferred it. And and I, I think that's fine too, you know, um, because it, it, I do, one thing I'll, I'll say is I noticed, um, and maybe there's a volume two, but yeah, omissions in my mind, um, even you mentioned some of them already. Um, and I was curious about like, who, who'd you miss? And you don't need to call out who just said they didn't really want to participate, but is there a couple people that maybe you're like deadlined and you're like, oh, I, I couldn't get that person or I couldn't find enough or I couldn't, um, you know, I couldn't include them for whatever reason. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to me because I made an early decision, like stylistically, to only include first-person writing, which kind of limited me to certain things because not everyone's a writer. And so if people hadn't written things already, um, because a lot of the, about half of the things in the book were things that were written already that we pulled together, but half of them were things that I essentially commissioned and asked those people to write something. Um, And Mm -hmm. so if people hadn't, themselves written anything then it was really hard to include them because not every climber's a writer and so they would say right. like the, yeah people that like the ones i some of the ones i named earlier sue mcdevitt mary braun joe whitford there's photo of joe which is great but it's hard because if people don't want to 
right, then I I could have, in a different type of book, I could have right. had plenty to write about them. But because sure. I had kind of committed to like first person writing um, and a couple of people, we were able to sit down for like basically an interview because there might be a great oral storyteller and record it and then transcribe it and then use that as the draft that they worked on. Um, and that worked a couple of times. Um, Ellie Hawkins, um, Lucy Parker, those were kind of stories where people were hesitant to actually sit down and write, but were really happy to tell stories. And so we were able to mm -hmm. make it work that way. And then, so I would say that, yeah, those are some of the women that I think that come to mind who aren't included that um, are really important to the history. And then Catherine Freer is another one. And I mean, she died a, a while ago. And so that's part of it too, right? Is that if people had already passed away and they didn't leave anything, like any first person writing, mm -hmm. um, yeah, Bev Johnson, like people that have already passed away. And I'm sure there's tons of, from the early years too of people that just aren't here anymore. And so whatever they wrote is what they wrote. And because I made a decision to use first person stories, right? then a lot of those people didn't get included, whether because they don't want to or because they're not around or they didn't have time. And like, I couldn't just force everyone to do it in the way that like, if I was writing a history book, right? Like if I wanted to make sure that I included everyone, I could have written it because there's tons sure. of people that would talk about them and articles that have been written about them. But yeah, I think that was, I like that the book is all first person because I feel like it helps show how different everyone's experiences are. Like the stories are really different in a way that you wouldn't get if you if one person kind of wrote them all. But yeah, the downside to that was that you just couldn't include everyone because you needed their participation in order to do it. Sure. But then on, I feel like on the flip side, maybe it is a more of a pro than a con that some of those women aren't included because it just goes to show you how many there are, right? Like this book sure. could have only been so big. Like I totally got cut off at some point by my editor who was like, we cannot go over 40 stories. Like this is enough for now. And so I just like, one of the things I kept thinking about, and I'd heard somewhere that Roper and Steck have the 50 classic climbs of North America. And a lot of people now think of those as the 50 classic climbs. But at the time, they wrote that they just thought they were some 50, they were 50 classic climbs among hundreds of classic climbs. They were just, they just had to, you know, 50 is a nice number, they picked 50 climbs. It's not like these were the but now they're, you know, now they're often referred to as the classic climbs and people try to tick them off and there's lists and things like that. And I try to think of this book as the same way that like these are not the women climbers of Yosemite. They're just some of them like there's volumes worth. And so maybe by not including some of the people that you would expect when you open the book, it almost just goes to show you like how many more there really are. So Lauren, I know you kind of glibly said that you don't care if people read your book because uh, at least this book is out there and it's a it's a testament to all this history that hasn't been told quite in this way before. But um, I'm sure people will read this book, and I'm curious to know like what you hope uh, people get out of it. Like what's your what's your hope that uh, that you know that 15 year old kid who reads this comes away thinking, and um, what's your message for? for people as they approach this book? First and foremost, I just wanted to include really good climbing stories. And my hope was always that if you, you know, if the cover had been ripped off, you could start at the beginning and read it all the way through, almost without noticing that all of the authors were women because you're just so wrapped up in like great climbing stories. And I think that it does that. And so I think that it's not like a book for women. I feel like it's a book for climbers because I feel like some of the climbing stories are outrageous and awesome and totally like deserving in their own climbing history way and that's something that we wanted to do like I think it's pretty not political in that a lot of the women don't choose to directly engage with the fact that they're a woman in their story but to me like the book as a whole is more of like a political act of just like we're just taking up space that I think we deserve and I think for me yeah, I think a lot of a Liz, the end of the Liz Robbins story where she talks about her own climbing and learning about herself and this idea of having only begun the excavation of like learning about herself through climbing. And I feel like for me, this book was very much that in terms of I did this and I made this thing that I'm proud of and I'll probably not make a second volume, but someone could and there could be so many. Like I think that one of the big takeaway points for me like I said, it's just that this is just such a sliver and that climbing means lots of different things to different people. Like I got asked a lot by the women that I commissioned essays from if they wanted me to like 
talk about women's issues. <laughs> and I said, well, only if it actually represents your experience as a climber. And for some, it does. And for some, it doesn't. And some of the stories are super light and happy about just like how fun it is to go rock climbing. And some of them are kind of dark. And some people didn't have great experiences in Yosemite and some did, but they all felt like it was influential to them for some reason or another. And so I kind of like how varied the stories are. And I feel like yeah, at, at a really basic level, they're just really good climbing stories that are like worth telling around any campfire or dinner table. And then I think it's cool to be able to realize, oh, these all just kind of happen to be done by women. There's so much more. <laughs> it was so hard to stop at some point and just say, okay, we're done. If you've just finished your first helping of the run out, and like a wayfish 19th century street urchin, you want some more, please. Well, you little larcenous rascal, you're in luck. Because if you go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun, you will be entitled to copious bonus gruel like a recent dissection of the famous aid climbing rant by yours truly. In early YouTube video, the aid climbing rant may have been one of the first digital climbing memes. And what I realize is that these stories of of these pitches and these roots and stuff. Like I went up there looking for them and they didn't exist. Like there is not an entire pitch of hooking. Like you hear about it when you're sitting in the meadow and it's like it, it, that's not, that does not exist. It's fake. And so there was so much like bullshit around it that everyone just assumed was true, but no one could actually, you know, point to and, and in a way, my, my progression across El Cap was trying to kind of like, okay, well, let me go find that. Let me go find this, like the heinous, this most gnarliest thing ever. And um, I just kind of like climbed them all. And I was like, okay, well, those weren't that bad. And that was like where it came from. So help us out and go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. Today's final bit comes from climber and finger-picking maestro, Harris Freyf. Harris lives in Bishop, California and posts his tunes on Bandcamp. Link in our show notes. Today's selection is called Chimney of Narnia, and that's Narnia with a G.
You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Caloose, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, no, no. Patreon.com slash runout podcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, you should go and sign up at Patreon slash runout podcast.com. No, pot.com slash runout podcast. Something like that. Give us some money.